Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Only the dead have seen the end of war. While the monopoly of deadly force lies with the state that we are in, men must become warriors because they are in love with war and women are in love with warriors. And I want to be a man who is loved. Good morning and welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR Community Radio. My name is Brendan Bonsack. 3CR broadcasts from the land of the Wurundjeri people. Sovereignty has never been ceded, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and into the future. The poem we just heard was from the voice of Eleanor Jackson, widely published poet and spoken word performer, board chair and former chief editor of the long-running Peril magazine, author of A Leaving, published by Vagabond Press, and a regular guest at literary and arts festivals, including, most recently, the Melbourne Spoken Word and Poetry Festival last month. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Brendan. How are you? I'm great. Is this a theme that you're working on? Um, It's a masculinity and men and the relationship to a particular way of being in the world is definitely uh, a continuing theme in my work, gender especially. Um, And also, I think, to one of the really particular themes that um, I think nuances work as a writer when you want to perform that work, because equally, when you write something and then you want to take up space with that writing and share it, then you also bring the body to that conversation. So I think um, for most people, they read me as a woman, and they're fairly comfortable with that. But I think that 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 presentation creates a dialogue with the writing and the reflection on masculinity that I think is a part of the conversation and a part of the writing. So yes, a big part of the theme, an ongoing one, and uh, one that I definitely haven't resolved. You know, identity politics is a big part of spoken word and sometimes a really visible and present part of spoken word. And sometimes I wonder if it will be a really valuable and important part of that politics, but also a part of the politics that will date Uh, And so sometimes I think I'm interested in exploring it in slightly more universal ways, a less grounded to a contemporary thing that has happened. Like I feel like we have a masculine war culture of politicians who want to talk about putting lines in the sand and deciding who will cross them. But actually the intrinsic question of what have we valorised in men and how have we found them to be valuable and, and so often violence has been a part of that value, is a lot more universal and I think hopefully maybe transcends some of those contemporary politics. Do you think masculine-feminine is too much of a binary distinction? Of course it is. But also that's the value in the comparison. I mean, of course it's limited. And what is really interesting will be the places where people slide out of those boundaries either willingly or unwillingly. So, you know, sometimes we want to do that because we want to be playful with gender and we want to stretch it. But other times we know that we fail to perform gender. And there is this place that we live in of meeting and striving and then failing against certain expectations, which actually then creates this really rich sense of possibility because we see in the failing 
all of these wonderful opportunities. So you see people doing things differently, and I use failing in a kind of inverted (laughs) commas sense, or in a more queer out of failure kind of way. And I think that's really exciting. So definitely a male-female binary is really limiting and silly, but it's also still a predominantly binary world. We mostly look for people to identify along those lines and we still treat oppositional characteristics as a really natural and normative way to define the world. So I read my baby daughter kids' books and there are so many that are about babies first opposites Mm, good mm. and bad and yummy and yucky those things are absolutely a part of how we have learned to categorize the world so i still think it's really relevant to think about those boundaries even as there's so much slippage the first man i wanted to be had blue suede shoes and jailhouse blues i was too young to know he probably stole them from black people too besotted by backbeat and backcombed to care. Sun records spun like golden summers, sun-kissed shoulders, aloha Hawaii. Still playing with Barbie dolls, a five-storey penthouse camper van, pink sports car and a ranch in New Mexico, and I still didn't want to be Barbara Millicent Roberts. But Elvis? Aaron Presley? He was by before I even knew the word. Pre-packaged meat market make-it-up manly. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy sings to girl, girl swoons. Boy sings to girl, then crowd, then girl. The trouble with girls is they will tickle you in your Acapulco and let you viva Las Vegas, but it's all easy come, easy go. No one is as clean cut as the promo. Such a drag that Katie Lang beat me to it. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on 855am digital radio or streamed online via 3cr.org.au. The program is Spoken Word and I am speaking with Eleanor Jackson today. I would love to be a part of a kind of ongoing and healthy conversation about gender, not so that we can erase gender and have it be totally meaningless and everyone will be in a kind of personality version of a mouse suit, but so that we can liberate ourselves from the negative and harmful elements that come from feeling afraid that others will challenge our gender identities and our legitimacy. Or change what the extreme is. Yeah. It's not desirable necessary for men to be stoic, silent and violent. In some ways, I imagine that people may have natural temperaments and wish to be stoic and quite silent, but they may want to find peacefulness and tenderness and giggles to be entirely congruent with that kind of personality. And I think that what we want to do is decouple those senses of insecurity and fear, which then necessitate a kind of violent protectiveness um, from some of the other more traditionally masculine characteristics, for want of a better way of putting it. Do you think poetry is a good way for men to get back in touch with their emotional side. Yeah, and it's a really funny one too because it's not like poetry was ever not masculine. I mean, if you think about whether it's um, Blake or Rambeau or some of these, what do you mean these are men? Poetry was man's domain and also because men were writers and enabled to be in the public domain to begin with. So, um, but but it is interesting that that has changed and that in some ways this kind of writing, a writing that has a... 
you know, a particular set of constraints and forms and all the rest of it, if you want to call it poetry, but also a, a particular marketing image that it might seem a bit effete and um, feminized and emotionally driven, all the rest of it. And I think that there is a great possibility for men who write poetry and also women who write poetry and those who do not identify on the binary who write poetry to celebrate and recognize things like emotional attunement and observation and delicacy of language as a part of their gender identities. I um, So I grew up in Ballarat and my dad now lives in Warrnambool and does a community radio show there on 3-Way FM. Do check it out if you'd like to listen to Lonesome George on a Saturday night uh, for three hours of blues. And I have been to lots of music gigs with him as a result and he's a great lover of the blues. That's his deep and abiding obsession. And I am always really interested how the presence of music enables people to access deep emotionality and really picturesque and narrative language, lyric stories. I mean, that is exactly what lyrics are. And yet when you are vulnerable to the people and you don't have a band and you don't have the kind of deified quality of being a rock star to protect you, that emotional outlet is sometimes much more exposing and risky for people. But I think at its core, people love stories and emotions. They love to be swept up in them. And, you know, just kind of needs a few... It's like gateway poems, do you mean? Like they, they need to have a few few light poems, suck them in. And um, I went once to see Colin Hay from Network and he now does lots of solo gigs. And I remember seeing this audience, which was kind of a mixed hipster, um, you know, people who knew Colin Hay's newer work and kind of television uh, songs and then people who really were like diehard Minute Work fans. And I loved hearing these men kind of bellowing along to I come from a land down under in ways that are really cathartic, like it's cathartic to yell along and sing and that kind of stuff. And then to also, you know, come to sections and be like, my, 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 it's a beautiful world. I like drinking Irish tea with a little lapsang souchong kind of thing. <laughs> Lyrics that would be um, really discordant with the kind of masculine um, presentation that they were making to the world and I guess that that can be some of the hard things with poetry is that it doesn't really enable people to sing along it doesn't bring people into it and then um, it sometimes forgets the other parts of the body that want to move the kinetic responses so I do know that there are lots of reasons why poetry can be a little alienating for people but I think that the intrinsic desire to hear story to be captivated by it to move along with it is is actually quite widely shared and just need to sneak it in a bit maybe slam with all its theatricality is helping definitely yeah i never know too if i'm a slam poet i don't think so i've been in lots of slams i mostly would enter them because i felt like there weren't very many women joining them but now i feel like there's lots of um people from different backgrounds who are participating in it which i think is a really great equalizer and there's another of those binaries, mm. slam and yeah. whatever the opposite of slam is, and page and stage, you know. I actually brought along the Solid Air anthology, which I don't know if you are looking forward to, but it's being released imminently. Mm-hmm. Um, but UQP have collaborated with David Stavangen and Marie Tui, who are ex-directors of the Queensland Poetry Festival, but great writers, really enthusiastic arts 
curators and um, performers in their own capacities and they have brought together a spoken word anthology from Australia and New Zealand and really trying to capture a point in time history of Australian and New Zealand performance writing. So writing that, that I guess, kind of bridges that, um, hopefully because maybe people will want to sing along. Maybe they'll want to do their own versions at home. Um, and I have one small work in there, which I um, feel really delighted and honoured to be next to some cool people. You know, Courtney Barnett's in there. <laughs> my my favourite spoken word artist. Um, her tractor Preston is in there. Bit of a laugh, but anyway. Yeah, please read some. Um... This poem is called When Women Go to War. It will not be pretty. Much as you might like to think, we would bring a feminine touch. It may seem strange, but we have trained in trenches just as terrorist as theirs. The birth, the bed, the brothel. These were the places where we were the spoils of war. We are as capable of cruelty as men. When the time comes, each woman will leave the field, the factory, the suburban noose that comforts, and at the appointed hour, solemn as the coming drum, taking every girl child with us, we will start walking to the desert, to the forest, to the bush. No food or water, resting never, not until there is a swathe of bodies laid out along each road every mewling baby quiet until the air is still as doom, ending life at last, as men have longed to do. I remember that one. I've seen that on the stage before. And now they're on the page. (laughs) You can have it. Did it have to be altered to put in the book? Yes, multiple times, mostly for the line breaks. I mean, it depends. Lots of people like to have the line breaks at the natural breath breaks, but sometimes that can be a bit lumpy. You basically get like claws, new line, claws, new line. And I think sometimes people like to see the stretch that happens when you pull a line around. They need text broken up in different ways. I actually find it pleasing if there's a little bit of formality. I like stanzas. But, you know, maybe that's just the way that the eye likes to group things together. So I did rework the stanzas and the line breaks to both fit with the natural breathing and the sense and to give it a bit of tidiness, I suppose. Less looseness than when you um, get to say it out loud. Yeah, and you don't know how the reader's going to read it themselves. Mm. That's always been interesting to me, the few times that I've had somebody read a poem of mine and I've been present for it. It's always so interesting how much everybody's individual vocal tone and reading style impact on things. You can sense their interpretation in the way they read it too. Definitely. I often come back to this um, Leonard Cohen piece about how to read a poem in it, he sort of talks about the different kinds of emotions that spoken word poets bring to their poetry, and it feels just as relevant today as it probably was in the 70s when he wrote it, 70s or 80s. And he asks people not to enact the butterfly. Do you mean you do not need to levitate from the stage in order to describe the butterfly? And instead, you want to talk about the emotions and the experiences that are within as if you were describing climbing a mountain to an expert group of mountaineers. So don't 
be like, that mountain was so high, I climbed it. But to describe it really specifically, the equipment, the weather conditions, the mountain and its gradations, but you are doing it with this respect that everybody in the room has already had this emotionally fulsome life. And I think that I have a pretty muted reading style. And it's really interesting when somebody else reads it and the things that they lean on or the energy that they give it. It's, it's exciting, but it's very different. Your poetry has a kind of nostalgia to it to me. I don't know that it's for a particular place or, you know, or time. It's a, it's a nostalgia for a particular emotion. Okay. Are you attempting to do that? Well, in a sense, that's really reflective of why I write. I love this quote from Dolores O'Riordan from The Cranberries, who was asked once why all her songs were so sad. And she said, well, if I'm sad, I write music. And if I'm happy, I go down the pub with my mates. And so I don't necessarily write to record things that I think are sad or happy. Sometimes they're both. And often that feeling of happy, sad is an emotion that I really treasure. But I definitely do it to commemorate a particular kind of feeling a thing that strikes you and stays with you for a long time. Um, I was working on one poem recently that's about the GAN, or the GAN, depending on how you pronounce the train ride that trundles up the middle of Australia. But they have these long train journey television shows that are on now where you can watch a train for eight hours. And coincidentally, the GAN, because I'm that kind of person, um, the GAN version of that train show was playing the day after I delivered my baby and I was in the hospital and I was watching it on the screen and kind of listening to the white noise train thing and occasionally they'd pop up little historic tidbits and the baby was trying to feed and people are coming and milking me and all kinds of things are happening. I'm terrorised that I might have to have a bowel movement and who knows what's going on. Um, but I remember watching this train go by for hours and hours and people maybe came in and out of the room periodically and they went past Snowtown in South Australia and they talk about how it's a big wind farm area now and how in the middle of town there's a wind farm blade kind of just stuck in the middle of the ground like a, I don't know, like a statue or something. And although I don't I've never been to Snowtown. Um, My previous memories have obviously only been around the brutal murders that took place there in the late 90s, which were probably as I was finishing high school and early university. And I don't know why, but I really acutely, I mean, it's an intense period of time. You've just given birth to a baby, but I really acutely remember that sensation of feeling terrified that my baby would live in a world with graphic, horrible mass murders and weird incongruous civic monuments to wind farms but that feeling of oh my god I'm on this journey and this horrible scenery is kind of rushing by it's horrible and stark and beautiful but the emotions that I felt were all about kind of propulsion and loss and terror and and yet kind of moving onwards into the void and I suppose that those are the kinds of heightened emotional moments when I feel like I want to write it down because I might never feel that way again. I might get on a train and go to Dandenong and not feel anything about it and I'll probably never have another baby. And um, I have watched those train documentaries a couple of times since then. They're kind of weirdly, weirdly hypnotising. But definitely 
you know, in terms of a nostalgia, like a kind of casting back to painful but beautiful memory, it's a it's a memory that has a kind of um, physiological and kinetic response to it, an intensity that you want to hang on to. And I guess that's what I like about reading poetry, being cast back into somebody else's acute recollection of a thing or a time or an experience. Um, but I guess I'd never really thought about it that way. So thank you for that, for that kind of insight. You've been described as powerfully quiet. Is that something you work on as well? Or is that just your natural? No, I'm actually naturally a really rambunctious person. <laughs> Super rambunctious. and But I do. I do really work on it. And I have talked about this in um, an explicitly in the Catholic kind of way, in that I recognise myself still as culturally Catholic, notwithstanding um, much less active practice of Catholicism and a much stronger sense of disgust and disappointment at what the formal institutions of the Catholic Church have really delivered for our community. No need to go into it. We all know what we're talking about. But notwithstanding that, I think as a Filipino person, the relationship to the Catholic Church was strongly cultural. It was a place where you met to be with family and to, you know, routine and ritual. They're, they're the things that kind of ground you. But church is also the place where you really encounter beautiful language for the first time, language that has cadence and sonority and um power because it happens often in a beautiful place a beautiful place with great acoustics and a person who's practiced looking fancy and um wearing a big dress while they do it and a captive trapped hungry audience living off bickies and <laughs> three breaths of booze um and i do still think of poetry as a kind of secular prayer so a place where you say particular words, they have a kind of incantation. You are hoping for that slightly magical, slightly spell-like transition where people will feel things because of it. And in a church, you want them to feel humility or transcendence or grace or, you know, wherever you are in the service. But you can play with that sense of emotions in poetry and in performance um, across a broader palette. They don't have to be for a, a kind of reconnection with the divine. But I am looking, I suppose, for a kind of quotidian holy that happens when we deeply bear witness to something. And if our life is mostly ephemera and shopping and noise and advertising, then it's kind of depressing. I mean, we're not very good for the environment. We're not very nice to each other. It would seem wholly unsatisfying to be a human unless there were these moments of collective transcendence where we feel something about the birth of a child, about the death of a loved one, about the loss of something. It would be disingenuous of me to pretend that that doesn't have some kind of deep grounding in a religious upbringing, even if I feel critically um, critically changed about where that religious upbringing sits for me now. But in my personal life, I'm very much noisier. <laughs> but I think quiet is, because of its rarity, is something precious. People lean in. They have to, but also... No one really listens when they're being shouted at. I like protest, but we have a kind of embodied reaction when somebody yells at us. And I think that even if they want you to yell with you, do you mean I want to be? I want I want you to be drawn into that um, 
primal yell, a part of us shuts off. And I think some people are more masterful at that yell, but I don't, I don't necessarily work in that space. And the thing that I feel really grateful for in terms of being able to have this art practice and share it is the, the confidant quality that it then opens up to people. If you expose something to them and they listen, that they will feel a capacity for a certain kind of intimacy, which is to return that. And it cuts down all kinds of social niceties that are really important, but they also distance us from each other. And so I remember once having a sound engineer come up after a gig of mine and I did a work called The this is the Very Best Story That I Know. And it's about a whole person's life cycle and wishing that you could love them perfectly from, from their birth until their death, but knowing that essentially you stuffed it up because you were human and you made some mistakes. But if you could, you would tell them their life story all over again and they would be soothed from all pain and all challenge and you would love them. And he came up to me afterwards and he was crying. He was like... My wife died six months ago of throat cancer and I've been searching for this way to describe how much I wish that every minute of her life could have been easy. And I would never have had that experience with him. He would have done a professional job and I would have done a professional job and it would have all been great and he probably had to turn the sound up really high on me to get over the crowd. Um, but I feel like that's such a generosity that people offer you when they're listening to you uh, because they have moved into a quieter place where they're not being shouted at or they're not being shouted down. Um, and even though I am talking, I am taking up the mic time, it is also trying to make space for other people to share a conversation. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. So this poem is about my father, and I guess it's a counterpoint to it. I've also been thinking a lot about the fact that he will die. It's so depressing. And he's such an interesting man, and he had a stroke about 10 years ago. And so the person that he was pre-stroke and the person that he is post-stroke are very different. They're still the same person, essentially. But I feel this sudden, terrifying consciousness that he will die and that both of those people will evaporate from my life so I'm trying really hard to remember him and to listen to his show lots because then he makes me laugh anyway and my dad was the second man I wanted to be he rocked a short sleeve shirt every day no matter the cold was good at chess wanted once to open a restaurant that only served pumpkin and loved me with certainty the tick-clock time pass, the rock, the rock of ages, the rock on which we build the rock, he rock the cradle rock the world. My brother and father were both circumcised. My mother justified it so that they might know each other to be the same, that this could be the way that they would know that they were family. Just a little snip. And still, for years, they barely spoke, falling out over something that no one ever named. The rock and the hard place. The smallness of the big man. I want to be a man who speaks to his son. I want to be a son who speaks to his father. 
Do you think people are afraid of silence? Of course. I mean, I'm afraid of silence. I grew up in a household with two men, so my father and my brother, and then they proceeded to not speak to each other for about 14 years. They're still not really talking. And my job would be to make friendly patter in the meantime. How was school? School was great. Yeah, great. What did you do? Adrian had music practice. (laughs) Ha ha ha. I picked him up. I mean, that's absolutely a role that I played in silence. But I think that the things that make us uncomfortable can also be really interesting places of learning. So we don't really learn if we're completely comfortable with everything. We learn mostly when we stretch ourselves a little bit to be profoundly uncomfortable in ways that create a kind of cognitive dissonance where you're worried that you are stupid or that you are never going to get it or that this is not for you. Those are places where you feel really shut off. But to be a little bit uncomfortable to stretch psychologically or physically they're really great um, and exciting opportunities to learn and change. So I do kind of welcome feeling a bit uncomfortable and I feel more comfortable with uncertainty as time goes on. Not quite knowing what I'm going to do, not quite knowing what I'm going to say and feeling a little bit less stressed that I need to resolve that. Do you feel like your recent entry into motherhood has opened that possibility? Yes. Early parenthood is just... I remember it's about unpredictability. I mean, it's not even just uncertainty, like maybe I will go to the shops at 10, maybe I'll go to the shops at 12. It's like, will I get out of the house at all? Will a giant poo explosion happen and I'll have to stay and clean it up? Will something get broken? Will somebody run into something and hit themselves on the head? Will that person be me? <laughs> I don't know. And so that's that's a much more kind of wild unpredictability. And I think to the temperamental dance that is happening with a person who hasn't yet worked out what their temperament is. And I certainly think that, particularly if you parent older, like I'm now in my 40s, and that means I've had a long time to acclimatise to rational thoughts that I am in charge of and timetables that I mostly have control of, notwithstanding PTV. And so now... I'm much more locked on, I'm more barnacled to my own self-identity. And I think that I didn't realise then that parenting would come with so much grief because I imagined that I would need to be myself and then a mother, but I didn't realise actually I would need to be a mother instead of myself. And that's different. Anticipating juggling, anticipating time constraints, anticipating fatigue. Those are things I prepared for. What I didn't prepare for is no longer having myself. And that quite a big part of myself was thinking and quiet time and writing, going to a poetry reading, seeing other people, purchasing a new book, reading it in the quiet, that children are the enemy of time. And so when you have that little enemy in yourself, you also have to balance out how much you love them with a kind of simmering resentment that you've lost a part of yourself, not a resentment of them, but a resentment that perhaps you weren't grateful enough for the time when you had you under your full dominion and you wasted it by doing dumb stuff. And I did a lot of dumb stuff. And I do mean not even catastrophically bad choices, just like boring things and administ trivia and going to social events that I probably had no interest in because I was like, oh, maybe I'll see so-and-so there. 
it's like, oh my goodness, I should have been learning Russian because I will never learn Russian now um, when faced with the fact that you may never achieve some kind of difficult and interesting thing because you need to be supportive of somebody else. Yeah, for me, it was a place of grief. Good grief, but still grief. Good grief. Good grief. <laughs> Did you feel a new kind of love? Yeah. Um, yes, it's a particular new and unusual kind of love. And it's also a way of experiencing nostalgia and revisitation for the love that you have experienced previously. So as my, I used to have a work colleague who used to say, it's never too late to have a happy childhood, Eleanor. <laughs> and I was like, Anthony, that is proof you had one. So <laughs> I don't, congratulations to anyone who had a, had an exclusively happy childhood. I, you've done very well for yourself. You should be very nice to your parents. But by and large, most people will reframe their parenting relationship relative to their own experience of parenting because you can't not do that. You have to look at yourself making terrible flummoxed choices and think, oh my goodness, my parents made all these terrible choices, which is why they did such a middling, kind of okay, sometimes quite great, a little bit terrible job. And, um, and I judged them as a child because they were unable to make the right choice at the right time because I assumed that because they were tall and could reach stuff up high, that they would also know what to do with themselves or their career or their, their love that they felt for the other adult who was responsible for the parents and the children kind of arrangement we were in. And, you know, they didn't because they were human and limited and wonderful. And I think there's, there's lots of forgiveness that comes with parenting. It's like this weird fractured mirror that you see things, but, but they're all at different angles. Chain Gang Blues. My father used to say that the blues were the birthplace of all music. Griot, harlot, hard man or friend. We were all searching for the spiritual holler, the unmighty yell. For we are also shackled to each other. Each of us chipping or digging or breaking black rocks in the hot sun. Shackle sores weeping, the pustule skin seeping. He picks up his keys as he goes to leave. And we all take another step out along the road. The music of our manacles as we grip to his leg. Don't leave me. Take me with you. Don't go. She slaps my cheek with a crack or a chip or a break of black rock. We are the hobbles and this is the stone. Many days of sorrow, many nights of woe. And a ball and a chain everywhere I go. You could almost sing it. You could. It does have a, the last couple of lines are from a Ma Rainey um, blues song called Chain Gang Blues. Um, but that sense, I suppose, of family always being really, yeah. People see their family bonds as a source of strength and, and a curse. Yeah, I think I've seen them as both. It's, it's very interesting, I think, culturally now. I've talked about this with a few other people who come from um, Australian hyphen backgrounds so that they might have a, a parent who's Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Celtic, Australian and a family who a family parent who is a first or second generation migrant. And I think about it a lot in terms of how possible it is for my child to feel Filipino-Australian because I certainly don't feel Filipino when I 
go to the Philippines on the very rare occasions that I have, um, it would be, I think it would be false in some ways to describe myself as Filipino. But that hyphenated quality of feeling Filipino-Australian has been a really important part of my understanding of my own cultural placement in this country. And yet I'm not sure that for my child that her experiences would necessarily be the same as mine and that visible racism, so racism that happens for people who are more visibly racialized, is a really important part of racism in Australia because cultural assimilation is kind of the, the opposite end goal. And so essentially if my child passes as white, will that be so much more socially appealing than trying to foster a cultural connection that would grow ever more diffuse? And so reconnecting with my mother in particular has been a really important part of early parenting because otherwise I'm not sure how to communicate culture. So we have Filipino Fridays. Which consists of what? My mum coming over and feeding my child totally inappropriately sugar-loaded <laughs> <laughs> snacks. And also we have Filipino food. And music? Mm, there is some Filipino music. There's actually quite a bit of Filipino uh, kind of pop music that we did listen to. But no, mostly it's more dancing and play. So I don't necessarily remember... Um, my Filipino family listening to a lot of traditional Filipino music, but the idea that if you went out with my mum and her friends and her side of the family, men danced without drinking. And the opposite didn't happen in my Anglo family. That's a, that's a kind of easy divide around how they related to music. So Australian men will dance if drinking, and Filipino men will dance very well and don't need to be drinking. I sing the words I will not say so. Hey, this is Greta Ray, and you are listening to 3CR 855 AM Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The best way to like Australia, the best way to like Australia is to forget. Start with the place you came from. This will save you from ever having to go back. Gradually, you will disremember if it was durian or kimchi. Cardamom and clove will reduce to palatable bay fusion. Eucalyptus will remove the residue of the price sticker, telling you how much it costs. Of course, this is the way you pronounce your name now. Chocolate meat contains chocolate, doesn't it? It is also helpful to forget where they came from. Content yourself to know that their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother could not have been a prostitute before she arrived on that muck-trodden mayflower. Black out what must have come next. This will be easiest, for no one here will turn on that light if they can help it. Work hard, and with the right attitude, you can learn to appreciate dot paintings in a fine-looking gallery, hung where once there was a forgettable war. And if you truly want to love Australia, you can leave it. I love that one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> what do you love about it? I mean, it articulates in a very quiet way the mess we're in. It's, I mean, it is a funny one too because my, um, my father's family came over on the First Fleet and so they are really a part, I mean, as convicts, but both my 
X number greats and X number greats grandfather and grandmother um, were were a part of convict settler populations uh, with the First Fleet. I just try to think now. I think my mum has now been in Australia for nearly 50 years, 45, 50 years. Who knows? Um, but, you know, a very sizable portion of her life. Yet lots of people will look at you as if you are a migrant. And particularly when I was younger and I suppose looked more Asian. So now I think people are like, you have a bit of a tan and dark hair. That's nice. But when I was smaller and had little red glasses and hard Asian fringe and oh, must have been so adorable, people would notice that I was Asian and then they would ask where you were from. But I think it's actually something that's almost endemic to Australians that we ask people who look a little bit different where they are from and then we don't really think that hard where those of us who might look more similar to the dominant culture, where where we came from. And I think that, that that history and legacy is still really present. And unless you are First Nations in, or Indigenous, then I do think you have some pretty strong questions to ask yourself. It's really interesting that anger is an emotion that I think we often really want to reignite when we want to talk about racial reconciliation in Australia. And anger is very legitimate. There's lots to be angry about. Currently, I think we often look at justice as a kind of redistributive harm. We don't look at atonement. We look at how will we mutually harm each other so that it's bad enough for everybody. We want to think of equality of rights and equality of opportunities as if it's a zero-sum game, like I will have to give up some of mine so that you can have yours and that we then need to be punitive with each other. But actually, there is something more subtle about recognising the collective harms that we do to each other and continue to do to each other and finding some way to to remember them and hold them and then enable, I suppose, a reconciliation that is about a deeper and more nuanced use of that word, not just like let's reconcile the books, let's work out the ledger, but how do you actually hold multiple truths in your head at the same time and not have the hemispheres of your mind split? Um, and I think that that's a, a difficult conceptual kind of labour that we're not prepared to do and and takes memory work. It's why truth and reconciliation commissions go hand in hand. They don't just want a reconciliation, they want truth. It's a kind of necessary first step, but are we not over this yet? We're not. Do you feel like we're getting better? I feel like we're getting different and getting better. So as you may know, I've been involved in Peril magazine for a long time now, and the magazine itself has been going for about 15 years. But um, so in some ways you could say that we are getting better. I think that we were post-Cronulla riots and, you know, Pauline Hanson round one. That was a particular nadir in racial enlightenment in Australia. But we're somewhere different now, but there is still this sense that cyclical racism around new arrivals, uh, kind of movable xenophobia, is still a really strong hallmark of our domestic and international politics. So our global position relative to China and the US. We still feel uncomfortable and awkward about how to talk about it. We want to get lots of money from somebody but be liked by the cool guys. And internally, we want people to participate, but they must be very, very grateful for that opportunity. We should never really recognise that there's a place where we have both given and taken, that the railways exist because of coolie labour, that the sugarcane industry exists because of blackbirding, that we 
don't want to talk about stolen wages. I mean, we're really not sure of where the give and take has been a part of our national exchange. Instead, we want to say, I have had much and I have merited it. And here are the things I have given you and you should be very, very grateful for it. And the demonstration of gratitude is participation and assimilation. And so if you are prepared to look at a singular community and say, well, look, now it's quite good to be Greek and now it's quite good to be Vietnamese and now it's okay to be Filipino, oh, but, but it's not okay to be Sudanese still and it's not okay to be Muslim and really from anywhere. Do you? I mean, it doesn't really matter. But if you're going to be a hijabi woman or a, a, you know, an excessively noticeable Muslim man, those aren't good right now. But eventually those things will wear off when you work very hard and you send your kids to private school and then they get a good middle-class job and it will be fine. And and actually, Australia will have moved on to racially vilify a new group of migrants, so you needn't worry about it. This is actually just temporary. But that recycling of a sense of fearfulness, ostracization, assimilation through cultural erasure, and then just waiting out for somebody else to be victims to that kind of racism, I still think that is dreadfully present and a blight on our national consciousness. We need to demonstrate that those political values are out of step with our social understanding. Actually, in Australia, there are great numbers of migrants who arrive and lead rich and fulfilling lives, and they are welcomed by their neighbours, they contribute economically to their workplaces and to the GDP, they put down roots and find home, they build temples, they set up a grocery store, they have arts nights, they are absolutely celebrating what it means to be alive. I am so surprised that for a place like Australia, that joyous, ebullient gratitude and delight are not the main qualities of our national psyche. You think we need some humility? I think humility is I think humility is a great thing to have anyway. Because Humility gives you this wonderful place of joy in other people's success. If you have the opposite of humility, which I suppose is a kind of hubris, you mean like arrogance and a, I can do everything, then you actually can't take pleasure in anybody else's good fortune. But humility offers this place to both you know, love yourself and feel joyful. It's not about total self-effacement. But if we do not have an opportunity to celebrate in other people's pleasure and other people's joy, then we are essentially reduced to a pretty competitive culture and we cut off lots of the things that support us in a more collectivist or more community-driven way of being because if you found your entire culture on the idea that you must be a winner in order for there to be any happiness, then everybody else has to be a loser. And that's pretty depressing. And just fundamentally, in a definitional sense, not really possible. It kind of gets us all the way back to our binary of like, if you're not a winner, then you must be a loser. And we know that that just can't be the case. Um, I still think that Australia has a problem with non-dominant voices stories. I, I think that we need to think about the kinds of stories that we want to have make up our national identity and to consider that very important labour because in some way, shape or form, stories explain complicated, sophisticated things to us 
in ways that move us and then cement themselves into our understanding. And I think we are really still searching for not one story, but a collection of stories that really embrace us in our fullness. And that's women and men and queers and non-binary folk and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers, migrants, refugees, those who are incarcerated. We don't want to look at ourselves fully to see who we are and then learn to love ourselves fully. We want to look at ourselves in this tiny little sliver that resembles something else that we think might be good and to only celebrate the ways that we get closer to an ideal type that by and large hasn't worked out all that great for us. But, you know, I guess that is the role that um, groups like 3CR play. There are so many different voices on this station and I just wish that they were more broadly reflected in other kinds of media and other, other, other platforms. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Eleanor will be appearing tonight, 8th of August, at the quarterly gig Thin Red Lines, along with Kane, Christopher James White and Olenka Toroshenko. The show kicks off at 6.30pm at Red Betty in Brunswick. Please tune in to Spoken Word every week at 9am on Thursday or stream from 3cr.org.au. For regular updates on what's happening in the Spoken Word world, visit www.melbournespokenword.com. I am Brendan Bonsack. Thank you for listening. Thank you.